This is the Uncommon Wisdom Podcast, a podcast companion to the Substack newsletter, Uncommon Wisdom, that helps listeners uncover unusual wisdom through conversations and interviews with some of the most interesting people around. Please like, share, and subscribe. It's free with new content every week. Enjoy the show. I'm joined today by Professor Brian Kaplan. Brian, thanks for coming on the show. Delighted to be here. Uh, so you're a professional economist, and I was wondering if you would tell us a little bit about how that came to be. Right. So let's see. I did win a uh, prize in my senior high school for the uh, most likely to become an economist or something like that. Uh, there's an award ceremony. I remember the principal saying, uh, Brian Kaplan, our young economist. The backstory is the summer before 12th grade, I read Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. And it sounded interesting, but at the same time, it's, you know, her claims were so contrary to almost everything else I'd ever been taught that I was just curious, you know, could you actually have these kinds of radical free market policies? Are they even doable? What's going on? And so I did start reading economics from there just to find out whether these ideas are at all feasible. And uh, I mean, I did, I started off reading the Austrian economists that uh, Rand recommended, which Definitely was a very different perspective from what I've been raised on. And then when I got to college, then I learned regular economics. And uh, from there, I was actually weighing whether to be an economics or philosophy professor. Finally, I decided to go with economics. And uh, so I went to graduate school. And from there, I got my union card. And I've been an economist ever since. So I wanted to jump right in with some of your work. Um, you've written a lot on uh, the rationality of voters. I was wondering if you could say a little bit about um, why do voters have poor incentives to be informed? Like, it seems like voters often don't know very much if they know anything at all about politics. And this seems very puzzling, given that we're told our votes matter, voting is important, every vote counts. Uh, Why do voters have such poor incentives to be informed? Well, so if you strip away all the propaganda, the reality is that you could vote any way you want and it wouldn't change anything as an individual because you're just one grain of sand on the sea. You could vote randomly. You could vote for the Flat Earth Vegetarian Party. Like there's just no – whatever you decide to do, the odds that you in a national election will change anything are astronomically low. And here's the thing. There are some people who say, well, that's true, but people don't realize that. People act as if they think that their votes really matter. And what I'll say is I don't think they really do, all right? In fact, people on some gut level do realize that their action has almost no political effect and, you know, you know no, almost no effect on the outcome. And, you know, here's the sign. So if you propose having a, a modest poll tax, you know, so charge people $100 to vote, almost everyone freaks out. Well, if people believe their, their vote was really likely to matter, $100 would be a very fine price to go and pay to participate. And yet almost everyone thinks that almost everyone thinks that there would be a big effect. And I think that you know, this is accurate and it really gets to the heart of it. People realize that this is symbolic and the only way you're going to get people to participate is if the cost is very, is very low. If you raise it a little bit, then people, a large, large majority of people will just drop out and say, well, it's not worth $100 to me. Right. Or if they don't say it, they will do it without saying it. Yeah, you might also add here that um, maybe a lot of citizens secretly, secretly suspect or implicitly suspect that their votes don't matter, which is why they don't vote. Mm-hmm. Right. So large, yeah, yeah. Large of, course, of course, there's that. Now, there is a comeback saying, all right, well, but the people, once you do vote, then you're going to try to do a good job. 
And I said, that makes absolutely no sense at all. Just because if you there's a race with no prize, does the fact that you've bothered to show up for the race mean that you're going to give it your all? Maybe you'll just put in a token effort. Right. So, I mean, everyone has uh, has taken an exam that was not for credit and noted how much less effort you put into preparing for the test than if there was actually a grade. So a lot of people think that one way to address the problem of um, voter inaction or, or voters setting out potential voters mm-hmm. is to require like mandatory voting. Mm-hmm. So some democracies do this. Yeah, yeah sure. Um, I wonder if this would actually exacerbate the problem you're talking about. Would, would this help mm-hmm. democracy or would it make things worse? Well, I mean, I think you could get more people to participate. The question is, why do you want a person to participate when they don't know what's going on? Right. So there's a philosopher, Jason Brennan, has a book called The Ethics of Voting, where he makes a very simple point. If you're in a surgery room, would it make sense to have the slogan, it doesn't matter where you cut, just cut somewhere. Just pick up a scalpel and get to work. You don't need to have gone to medical school. You don't even need to know what the person's problem is. Just participate. You know, that would be absolute lunacy. And yet the idea that it's good for everyone to participate in policymaking via democracy is so well accepted, but it is the same idea that you you are encouraging the participation of people who really don't know what they're doing, and why would you want to do that? That's dangerous and irresponsible, right? And again, the fact that someone is participating doesn't mean that they're going to try to actually do a careful or a good job. You know, if someone makes participate, then fine, I'll just go and you know, open up my mouth and say whatever comes out of it first, and then I move, get on with my life. It's funny here because some people think, um, you know, vote. Just it, it matter. Every vote counts. Everyone should vote. Rock the vote. Get out the vote. You hear these slogans a lot mm-hmm. from the same people who, in a different breath, will be horrified at the prospect of the other side winning the election. So mm-hmm. shouldn't you be concerned with people on your side voting, but people on the other side not voting? Yeah, I think there's a couple things going on. First of all, there is a general view among Democrats that getting turnout uh, higher will help them. That's probably true. All right. And so I think that the most energetic promotion of turnout does come from Democrats when they are just trying to promote it generally. Now, it's true. Republicans will say the same thing. I think they say it less loudly and aggressively. Now, you say, well, why do they say it at all? I think the reason is that they're trying to look good. And one of the ways you look good in our society is by saying that you think that everyone should participate. But in terms of the energy, I think you can see the people who put the most energy into it are, in fact, those who think they'll benefit from higher turnout. In particular, usually you try to target your, uh, your, you know, your exhortations towards people that support you, right? All the while saying, yes, of course, it's wonderful to vote. Everyone should participate. Better to vote for the other person than not to vote at all. But I think that's insincere in almost, almost all cases. And, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but um, from what I understand, there's some pretty good evidence. So there's some pretty good social scientific evidence mm-hmm. that you can predict party affiliation based on things like beer brand preference or the kind of car you drive. This is very puzzling that that would have anything to do with, say, whether or not I'm a pro-life Republican or a, a tax and spend Democrat. Right. Those, those seem very unrelated. Yeah. So I've done a fair amount of work actually trying to predict party unification and related variables. So I never had a data set that had brand of beer or anything like that. Um, what, I, you know, what I do know is that it's very hard to predict it at all unless you uh, have a measure of ideology. Right? So if you have a measure of ideology, then at least in the modern U.S., that does give you a pretty good prediction. And furthermore, it's very hard to predict ideology. The closest thing to predicting it that I found is religion. 
So both your views of the Bible and your church attendance predict, uh, you predict whether you're going to be a Republican or a Democrat. But even that is actually not that strong a predictor. So, I mean, unless you're going to go and, and cheat and just say the best predictor of your party identification this year is whatever it was last year, all right, that will give you a crushing success. But it's not a very satisfying explanation. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of why there would be all of these very superficial things that at least partly predict, or wouldn't surprise me if you got a hundred of them, if you could get a good prediction, right? But, um, you know, as to what's going on there, yeah, I think a lot of it, it's, it's about some kind of group identity. So there's a liberal tribe and there's a conservative tribe, and there's a lot of things that members of the tribe tend to do, right? And they all cluster together to some degree. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if you could actually get a very good prediction based upon just beer, uh, because I know that, I mean, like even knowing someone's views on two or three issues, it like every issue helps, but, you know, the correlation between uh, any one issue of you and your party identification is modest. Like the only, like the best exception that I've, that I've heard of really is that the, uh, like the question, the answer to the question, the world would be better off if, or other country would be better off if they were more like America. That one actually was a very large Republican-Democratic difference and I think was quite predictive. Although I think the result was something like almost 100% of Republicans say yes and about 50% of Democrats say yes. So even there, it's a 50 percentage point gap, but there's still plenty of Democrats who will give you know, the Republican answer. I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about higher education. All right. Um, there's a lot of politicians, uh, there are a number of politicians who want free education for Americans. Um, you'll hear people say that it, you know, encourage kids to go to college after high school. And it's commonly assumed that you go to college to acquire skills. Now, I know you don't buy that. So I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about why that model is wrong, or at least yeah. largely mm -hmm. wrong. Yeah. So the idea that you go to college to get skills, I buy it a little bit, especially for certain majors like computer science. However, what I've said in my book, The Case Against Education, is that's very far from the whole story. You can just look and see that most of the subjects that people study in school are ones they're unlikely to ever use in a job, unless they become professors themselves, of course. And then the question is why? You know, there's the idea, well, maybe people do it because they like it, and that doesn't really fit the facts at all. I mean, students seem to have very little interest in learning this material, usually, except for a few special ones, right? Or you could have the story of... Well, let's see. What else could you say? Uh, well, why don't I skip to the story that I think is right? The story that I think is right is that a lot of what you're doing in college, as well as almost any other kind of school, is you're showing off. And why are you sh what, why you're showing off? You're trying to convince employers that you are a good employee, right? So rather than actually learning useful skills, you're trying to get your foot in the door, right, and uh, get hired, right? So you know the slogan that I like. It's not actually in the book because I thought of it later, but People often think of education as being job training. And I say a more realistic story is that education is a passport to the real training, which happens on the job. You mentioned a number of things in your book that I think are striking. Um, I, I've, taught the, I've taught your book, or at least chapters of it, a couple of times. And I've mentioned to students that they will unwittingly do things that support the signaling model, which is, which is not to say that higher education is all signaling, but yeah, it's a lot not. of signaling. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, for example, college is a puzzling product in that students are often happy if they get less of it. Yeah. So if I cancel class, the students are very, very happy. Mm -hmm. Whereas if Starbucks canceled my latte without giving me a refund, I wouldn't be quite as happy. <laughs> um, could you say a little bit about how 
uh, sort of unwittingly lends support. Student behavior unwittingly gives you support for signaling model, yeah. like the kinds of things students do. Yeah, so you know, that example I really like. So you know, the professor canceled class and the students are happy, even though they don't get any of their money back and they don't learn any skills during that time. Right. And this fits very much with employers don't know when, well, how often or when a professor canceled class. All they know is the grade. And students realize that if you cancel class, then you're going to expect less of us on the exam. And therefore, we don't have to know as much to get the grade. And then we can essentially get the, the what we'll get what we want, the grade for less work. Now, there is a rebuttal of this saying, no, 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 it's just the students myopic and they aren't thinking about the future. But that doesn't make sense because in college, you don't have to come to class. There's no required attendance. Right? And therefore, if you were simply myopic, you would unilaterally not attend class, even though the professor was holding it. What's the difference between a, cl a class cancellation and a class skipping? The difference is that there is no relative disadvantage on your grade. And that shows, so I think that, that this really it does actually reveal a lot. Uh, some of the other things that I talk about uh, in the book, students seek out the easy A's. They want to get teachers that don't ask very much of them. Again, because then you get the grade, but without the work. Let's see. Uh, you know, Here's another one that I like. Uh, if you worry about failing the final exam, but you don't worry about forgetting the material once the exam's over. If you're there to get skills, then forgetting everything is just the same as failing the exam. But if you're there to get a stamp on your forehead, there is a world of difference because failing stamps you with a scarlet F. You're a failure. Whereas forgetting doesn't stamp you at all, right? Well, it's because you know, most of what you learn is unlikely to ever come up on any job. I'm going to ask you to speculate here a little bit. I don't know if you've done any work in this particular area, mm -hmm. but I'm wondering how it is that students sort of unwittingly know what most of us don't consciously know about higher ed. Mm -hmm. How is it that students are picking up that education is, higher education is a big part signaling mm -hmm. when educators themselves don't seem to know this? Don't you find that so, puzzling? Yeah. So not really because I think people do know it. I mean, here's the thing. So I have, I've written many, you know, all my books are controversial. Yet, the one book I've written where audiences normally nod in agreement almost immediately is The Case Against Education. I've spoken to quite ordinary audiences of people not selected to agree with me. And for everything else, people are shaking their heads and getting agitated. For the education, it's like, yes, 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 obviously, obviously, duh, everybody knows this. So I think actually, this is something, it's not that people don't know it, rather that it is just not polite to say it. So it's something that people don't appreciate you saying around their kids. But if the kids aren't around, then they'll say, yeah, yeah like obviously the kid isn't going to have to go and know Latin later in life. But I don't want you saying that because I don't want you to get the, my kid to stop doing his Latin homework anymore. So I think that's really what's going on is that what I'm saying about education is actually very widely accepted. For once in my life or my career, something I say is actually not that controversial, really. It's merely socially unacceptable. Whereas most of what I say is both controversial and socially unacceptable, but this is only unacceptable. I don't know if this bothers you as much as it bothers me, but I have noticed um, sometimes when people get in an argument with a quote-unquote expert, um, at some point in the argument, the expert will cite their PhD mm -hmm. as some sort of an argument for their view. Mm -hmm. And the, I guess this puzzles me because in a lot of cases, PhDs, I mean, they're they're hard to acquire and, and they come with skills, but a lot of times there's a lot of signaling bound up with the PhD, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it strikes me that, like, if you're really the expert in that area, then it should really come down to the reasons and arguments and evidence. 
Mm-hmm. I don't really care that much about your credentials. Um, hmm. so I'm, surprised, I'm surprised you put it that way, because I, I, I thought you were going to say that people act like a PhD would give you a lot of knowledge, and yet when you bring it up, people just roll their eyes and scoff. Unless, of course, it's a STEM PhD. If it's a STEM PhD, there's a different reaction. But if it's social science or humanities, and you try to say, I have a PhD in English literature, who you dispute my view on Shakespeare? Normal reaction is like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> who cares about your stupid PhD? Um, but in terms of why you would appeal to credentials rather than to your actual learning, I'll, you know, I think even like it, it's quicker, right? So time is money, sir. And when you go, if you would like to go through all the arguments, that would take a lot more time than just saying, look, sir, I'm a doctor. Are you a doctor? Right. And then on top of that, of course, if there really is a genuine imbalance in knowledge, you shouldn't expect your arguments to be understandable to the person on the other side. Right. So, you know, you know, like, to me, it's actually much more convincing for someone to say, I do have a PhD in physics from MIT, than to start saying, well, look, don't you understand how gravitation works by Newton's laws, this, and adding in relativity, you know, like, or look, actually, like, I know too little to even understand whether these arguments are right or wrong, but if you got a PhD from MIT, I believe you. So if, if education, if higher education is, say, 80% signaling, mm-hmm. and it's really, really expensive, and, and, and ever more so, um, is there perhaps a more efficient signaling system we could use? And by efficient, I mean efficient from the point of view of society, yeah. where we can sort of get the same credentialing but for a cheaper price tag. Yeah, yeah, almost certainly. And you know, like the most obvious thing is just spend less on education, make it less affordable, and then people quit sooner. Right? Then there's a lot of evidence that people's the amount of education people get has something to do with the price, and that subsidies, of course, affect that price. So, you know, like, is, is it really clear that we had a, a, a better, we had, we have a better view of how able a worker is today than in 1970 when people got a lot less education? Far from clear. To push it back further, then you might say yes. Although again, that has a lot more to do with discrimination than with than with credentials. Um, so, yeah. But in any case. I mean, the main thing to realize is that right now, government piles about a trillion dollars worth of subsidies on the side of the status quo uh, every year. And so if we took those subsidies away, there's probably a lot of other options that people would switch over to. Right now, economists will often say, well, if your idea is so, is so great, why aren't other people switching now? It's like, well, right now, the status quo is a trillion dollars worth of subsidies in favor of it. So it's like saying, if football stadiums are, are, are socially inefficient, how come we keep building them? And it's like, yeah, well, because the cities get a giant or offer a giant pile of subsidies. So what's the big mystery? It doesn't mean that it's a good idea. It just means that government is putting its full body weight on the scales of the status quo. You mentioned that it makes sense in your book, um, A Case Against uh, Education. You mentioned that it makes sense for individuals to get credentials, because from an individual point of view, if I'm better credentialed than you are, I'm more likely to get the job. Mm -hmm. Whereas from a societal point of view, it makes little sense or less sense because we're spending a lot of money for expensive credentials, basically for the equivalent of a credentialing arms race, is my understanding. So don't we face an incentives problem here? Like it's a collective action problem with bad incentives. And it looks like the incentives stack up such that individuals are just going to keep pushing for the current system. If you were going to counter the momentum of the current higher ed system, how would you go about doing that? Yeah, so again, cutting uh, cutting the subsidies. There is a lot of research done showing that college attendance, for example, responds quite heavily to the price and to government support. So I just say, you know, less is more. Like, you know, so, you know, so subsidize it less, people get less. 
And here's the key thing. If I'm right about education, the result will not be a de-skilling of the workforce. The result will just be a de-escalation of the arms race. Now, you're right. There is this uh, prisoner's dilemma. But nevertheless, it is a prisoner's dilemma that is greatly amplified by government subsidies. So, again, just imagine a system where government paid you to pollute. All right. Well, if government got rid of subsidies, this wouldn't end pollution, but it would definitely put a big dent in the problem. And then I would further say that you know, if you had if you got rid of all the government subsidies at that, that point, then I would say, well, then there is some you know, people are learning some skills and there is some social value in ranking people. And maybe this whatever's left is the, the least bad way of doing it. I wanted to switch gears a bit to immigration and, and plug your your book, Open Borders, the science and ethics of the science and ethics of immigration. It's very well done. It's a graphic nonfiction book. I was, really, I was so when I first read it, I was very sympathetic to it, but I wasn't. I had some mm-hmm. objections rattling around in the back of my mind. I think like most people do. Yeah. Um, I thought it was very I, well I, done. I might too. <laughs> I I argue with myself every day. So you have you call it an open border stance. I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about what the view is and. Maybe give us what you consider to be the most weighty reason or decisive reason in favor of the, the view. Right. Um, so, yes, you know, so you know, open borders comes down to this. Uh, you know, human beings should be free to live and work in any country they want. Right. That's the, the that's the heart of it. Now, what does the, you know, does this mean that there would be no passports anymore? No border checks doesn't have to, you know, open borders doesn't mean no borders just means again that anyone's free to live and work wherever they want. Uh, of course, if you belong in jail, you're going to be in jail, right? So, you, well, you know, this doesn't mean let out the murderers or anything like that. Uh, but that is the core idea, right? And in terms of the weightiest argument, you know, I just say the weightiest argument is this. Open borders is a policy that not only is a big improvement for the people that currently are not allowed to migrate, but it's also a big gain to the people in the receiving countries because, the of the basic economics of trade when you trap human talent in unproductive countries you are impoverishing not only the person that is so trapped you're impoverishing all their customers and the immigrants come here then we are their customers right now you can see this very clearly with something like agriculture where you've got a farmer in mexico who produces maybe three thousand dollars worth of food a year let that very same farmer move to a farm in the united states and he'll be growing thirty or forty thousand dollars worth of food a year Right. What this means is allowing it to move doesn't just enrich the farmer, it enriches mankind because that same human talent is so much more productive under the management of an American farm than they would working on his own farm over in Mexico. And the same works clearly in manufacturing and even in services, even something as simple as shining shoes. When you let a migrant move from Mexico to Los Angeles to shine shoes, he is saving the time of people who have higher productivity and thereby is actually enriching mankind to a greater extent. Just like if you save Bill Gates five minutes of his time, it's worth a lot more to the world than if you save me five minutes of my time. All right. So uh, when economists have estimated how much are we losing by trapping all this human talent in unproductive countries, a uh, usual estimate comes out to be something like the uh, we could be the mankind would be twice as rich in a world where anyone could live and work wherever they wanted. So in a sense, you would. You would say that loosening immigration restrictions is a production amplifier that makes us yeah. much more productive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in any, like you know, this is not so, you know like in any way implausible. So again, just you know, imagine how productive the the, re, the listener would be if he were stuck in Mexico or Haiti. 
right? So you like, if you think that would make a difference for what you're able to accomplish in life, well, it makes a difference for the people that are currently there as well, right? And you know, as to why there's such a difference in productivity, the answer is there's so many reasons. So I mean, partly there's just better policies in, in richer countries. Partly we've had better policies for a long time. So you know, Mexico could adopt the best policies in the world today, but it wouldn't be a, a rich country immediately. It would take time. Uh, partly there's just better management in rich countries. So the firms are better managed. There's research on this. Um, so you know, like you know, one big tragedy of poor countries is that there's a, is that contrary to the popular view that people in poor countries are exploited by multinational corporations. The share of the population in poor countries that has any kind of formal employment is quite low. There's rather what is typical in poor countries is what I call incompetent self-employment. It's people who really are not qualified to run a business, but there isn't any qualified entrepreneur around them. And so they're desperately trying to eke out an existence, even though they would be making they could make a very good employee, but they're not really suited to manage their own business. You know, even in the U.S., I say, just think about. Most of the people you know, do you think they would be good at running their own business? It's like, you know, of course not, right? So, you know, formal employment is a great blessing. It's a way where you take people that would not be good at running a business on their own and you put them, put, make them part of a team. And the team works, even though the individuals would not be very good on their own. You cover a lot of objections to Open Borders in your book, mm-hmm. and I'm going to leave it there because I want people to buy it read it. Um, I think I think there's some good responses. I did want to pick your brain, though, a little bit about open borders and pandemics. Ah. And I'm wondering if you might be an open borders person under, like, sort of usual circumstances mm-hmm. and then think that maybe you shouldn't be an open borders person, say, during this, the, the COVID-19 or the Spanish flu. Mm-hmm. Do you think that, that that being in a pandemic changes the equation or do you think it's pretty much the same regardless? So it changes it a bit, but much less than people would think, and here's why. So right now, a reasonable estimate is that the world's border is about 98% closed, right? It's actually extremely hard to move from one country to another, right? Uh, so when you hear about the number of illegal immigrants, just think about how many would have come if they could do it for the price of a bus ticket, and you realize, in a sense, the laws are, are highly effective. They're draconian. They keep out most people want to come. Uh, but here's the thing. In a world where borders are 98% closed, the virus still spread virtually everywhere on earth. So you can have extremely tight controls and yet it does very little good. So, you know, you know, like England is an island and yet they are one of the worst affected places in the world. And so, I mean, it really does give you an idea about how, what, how tough it is. And then you realize, all right, so if we could keep out everyone, that might've stopped it. Even that isn't quite right. So, you know, like you don't just have to get rid of immigration. You have to get rid of tourism you have to get rid of you know, student of of, of student tourists or student visas. Then here's actually the kicker: to really keep it out, you would also have to prevent your own people from traveling, because if they could, if they can travel, they can go to another country that has it and bring it home. And then again, it breaks out because you only need a few people to get and uh, to, to get things rolling. So this means is that to actually go and really use migration restrictions to make uh, to make a difference here, make much of a difference. You have to go to something much more extreme than what you have right now. Uh, it's, you know, it is possible that you could do that, but I would just say that when you realize how extreme this is, I would say this is you know, basically it's an argument, no, you know, not against open borders. It's an argument against allowing really any kind of travel at all. 
And so in that case, I don't think it's a very strong or convincing argument because, well, it's, it's so draconian what you would have to do uh, in order to actually make much of a dent in it. Uh, so that's the first thing. Now, the second thing is you might start saying, well, wait, wait a second. Couldn't we just do quarantine or something like that in order to deal with this? Right. And the answer is, already, yes, you could do the quarantine uh, uh, for tourism. The quarantine, like a two week quarantine in and out would probably be enough to eliminate almost eliminate international tourism because people don't want to spend two weeks in lockdown when they arrive and two weeks in lockdown when they get back, right? But what kinds of travel would people be willing to actually do that kind of a quarantine for? And the obvious answer is for, uh, for permanent immigration. For permanent immigration, if you want to go and work in the U.S. on a farm, then the gain to your pay is so great that you would actually be willing to do that. Even for seasonal migration, people would probably do it because the pay gaps are so large, so he said, really, if anything, contagion is an argument against tourism, not against immigration, because there is a much more, a much less restrictive policy that you could use to deal with that problem. Uh, so there's that. Now, finally, something else is that I do think that the, you know, the current shutdown does give us an idea about how much we are losing from immigration restrictions, because really the shutdown or lockdown it amounts to internal migration barriers. So we have taken away the freedom to, to freedom from people to live and work where they want, right? If you want to, you know, you want to, you want to travel around, you want to go, or you want to go and work in a place, you're not allowed to do it. And we can see that it's not just a small problem, right? Saying that people have to stay in their houses in the more extreme cases, or saying that people cannot go to their place of employment, these things, or saying that they aren't allowed to go and shop in places they want, or go and eat in a restaurant. These are not minor inconveniences. These are devastating reductions in our standard of living, right, which we are now experiencing. Now, this doesn't mean that it's not worthwhile. Maybe it is, but the cost is, is enormous. And we are now finally seeing with our own eyes how bad it is to go and restrict the freedom to work and shop where you want. And then realize, well, the world normally lives on permanent shutdown. At the international level, we are shut down all the time. We've been shut down for about a century. And it is very reasonable to think that the world is losing just as much something in the same ballpark from these international restrictions as we are losing right now from these. The difference is that the current restrictions on us are temporary and at least have a plausible rationale of preventing contagious disease. Immigration restrictions, on the other hand, are permanent. And as for what the rationale is, what it is that people think that would happen that would be so awful if people were allowed to go and pick crops or shine shoes any, in any country on earth, I really don't know what that's supposed to be. So if anything, pandemics are more, if you're going to take them as a cue for immigration policy, they're more of an argument for closed borders than an argument against open ones. Very few people would actually say that they want to cut out tourism. Right? Right. So, I mean, I just debated Mark Kerkorian, head of the Center for Immigration Studies on this, and I, I, I actually, he shocked me. Because he said, yeah, yeah, I mean, obviously, like, we're not going to have any kind of permanent restrictions on tourism or anything like that. That's crazy. And I said, all right, great. Well, so, Mark, could you please tell all your supporters this? Because they won't listen to me, but maybe they'll listen to you. I wanted to press you on a point that you made, something that I call your uh, master response mm -hmm. uh, to, <laughs> to critics of open immigration or open borders. Mm -hmm. uh, you respond to a lot of things like um, immigrants, immigrants will hurt American workers uh, there's a possibility of like terrorism. There's all these things sort of rattling around in people's brains when they think about immigration. 
And you have what I is you call it a keyhole solution. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to quote you, and then I want to press you on, on it. Quote: If immigrants hurt American workers, we can charge immigrants higher taxes or admissions fees, and use the revenue to compensate the losers. If immigrants burden American taxpayers, we can make immigrants ineligible for benefits. If immigrants hurt American culture, we can impose tests of English fluency and cultural literacy. If immigrants hurt American liberty, we can refuse to, to give them the right to vote. Whatever your complaint happens to be, immigration restrictions are a needlessly draconian remedy, end quote. All right, so here's my question. Suppose we um, opened borders and we used your keyhole solution to placate voters. Perhaps we mm-hmm. prevented mm-hmm. Um, incoming immigrants from getting welfare benefits or voting. I don't see this, at least in principle, this makes sense, but I'm not sure how this would be politically feasible in the long term. Imagine, if you will, like, you know, 20 million Pakistanis move into Florida, Mm -hmm. right? And they are deprived of the sorts of things that you and I take for granted as citizens. I'm not sure how feasible that would be in the long term to implement a keyhole solution. But maybe I'm missing something, which is why I'm asking you to to clarify. Yeah. So a couple of things. First of all, for a lot of the complaints, it doesn't have to be long term because the complaint is about a short term cost. So, for example, this is a complaint that a first generation immigrant is going to vote the wrong way. Well, you know, you let the person in at 40 and they live in, and they live another 40 years and their kids are born in this country. And as long as their kids have assimilated to a high degree, then the fact that the parents were, were like were, were kept from voting, you know, that solved the problem. Right. Or similarly, if you're worried about fiscal burden, very it is very easy to tip someone from being a fiscal cost to being a fiscal benefit if you just deny them benefits for 10 years. So it doesn't have to be that they're denied for their whole lives in order to alter the math. In terms of whether it is psychologically sustainable, you know, I think here, you know, the idea of, you know, like, you have to earn your way in, you know, for example, you've got to go and first pay, you know, pay 100,000 in taxes before you can become eligible for benefits. I don't think this is actually that hard for, to sell people on. Um, I think it would be hard to sell people on, you know, kids being hungry in the streets, something like that. But again, you know, like, you don't need to have the most extreme keyhole solutions to have some. As I point in the book, we already have a lot. So right now, there already is a five-year wait for welfare eligibility and for a lot of government benefits, and that seems very sustainable, right? There is a wait for people to be, to be to apply for citizenship once they're in here. Uh, so there are already a bunch of restrictions that seem sustainable. So, you know, you might say the most extreme ones would not be, we're not Kuwait, but that doesn't mean that we couldn't go and dial them up a lot more and still have them endure, you know, especially as long as it is with the rationale of they've got to buy their way in or there's a probationary period. I think that's something that's a lot easier for people to accept than to say this uh, this is true for, for all time. And again, remember you know, that you know, as, unless you get rid of birthright citizenship, then the kids of immigrants will be citizens. And so they will get incorporated into the body of people where the special rules don't apply. So again, it really is something where no one gets born. No one is really born into it. Everyone that comes uh, is there where they have opted into it. So I think it, it does make it psychologically a lot easier. Um, I mean, I do think that you know having people here does tend to you know, like wear down people's sense of, well, they don't count for anything, right? But again, I think that's actually part of the problem uh, with current policies is that people tend to think of, you know, as long as a problem isn't visually present, then there's no need to worry about it. Right? So, you know, like I say in the book, if you don't like Haitian, uh, looking at Haitian poverty, don't go to Haiti right now. Whereas if there were migration, then there'd be Haitians here. They'd be doing way better than they do in Haiti, but you would have to look at them. 
right? So, you know, it is true that, you know, there is that, but I see still the idea that Kiel solutions are just deeply unsustainable, I think is exaggerated. I think, you know, the sensible thing is to say that, you know, the most extreme ones are not, are not likely to be popular for long, but that doesn't mean that we couldn't have a lot more and that that wouldn't be enough to tip the scales. Michael Munger, who's a political economist at Duke, uh, has said that the mark of an intellectual is someone who is aware of the best argument against their position, mm-hmm. and they have a response to it. So I'm curious, what is the best argument you've heard against open borders, and why aren't you convinced? I mean, I would say that, like the general family of arguments that are most convincing to me are political. So just the idea that immigrants will come here and either they'll get the vote or their descendants will get the vote and they're going to then go and kill the goose that lays the golden eggs, right? So, and again, like, you know, this begins with some reasonable premises. So part of the reason why Venezuela is so messed up is that the people of Venezuela thought socialism was a good idea or at least wasn't a terrible idea, right? And most people in the U.S. would actually say, huh, well, at least if they knew what's, what they were talking about in Venezuela, no, that, that sounds like a really bad idea. Right? And if you were to go and import a lot of people with those views, just because they like making money doesn't mean that they support the system that made their good standard of living possible. And so there is this danger uh, that you're going to import people who will then vote to ruin the system that you've got. Right? Uh, so that's sort of the general family of arguments that I think is most compelling. And then in the book, I go over a few different versions of it, but the Main thing to, you know, main things to think about here, right? So first of all, like logically totally possible, then the question is just how, first of all, how big are the differences in political views between people in rich countries and people in poor countries? So, and that's something where I actually tried to go and measure some of these differences, unlike many of the critics themselves who just assert it without actually looking at the numbers. And I think the main thing you see is there are some gaps in the expected direction. So, Foreigners are a bit more authoritarian, a bit more socially conservative, a bit more economically liberal than natives, uh, but it's very far from a night and day difference. So it's not as you know. So again, it's not like the typical American is a radical libertarian and the typical foreigner is a Stalinist. Far from it. Uh, so you've got to lose there. It's a marginal difference. Second of all, you'll see that the foreign-born are much less likely to vote. So if you think their views are poisonous, at least they don't spread the poison around very much. And third of all, there is work on political assimilation saying that kids uh, you know, generally do assimilate to the political culture of the receiving country. Uh, so there's that. Now, sort of stepping back, I would say that the concern then comes down to, well, how effective is assimilation, right? Or like, or like, is it reasonable to think that the assimilation that we see right now would continue when immigration levels are much higher, right? And there I would say that there is this great work done on uh, what are called diaspora dynamics, so how is it that immigration works? If you open the borders, you're likely to see a billion people show up the next day. And the answer is no. Instead, you're likely to see immigration levels that start off quite high by current standards, but are not high as a percentage of the population, and then see it snowball, right? And if it works that way, which is what the actual historical experience with immigration shows when you do open borders, is that it snowballs, it's not a wave, rather it starts off and grows and grows and grows and grows, uh, is that leaves plenty of time for the previous ways of immigrants to uh, or their kids to have assimilated so that at each point the dominant culture remains the one of the receiving country rather than the one of the sending country. So that is what I would say you know, is generally the best one. And again, the way that I like to put it is, I mean, if you really moved a billion people today, then I would be worried. 
right? If you moved a if you just gave citizenship to a billion people right now, plop them in the United States, I would be worried actually on a whole lot of levels. Uh, I mean, I'd be worried actually the streets would be clogged with people and you couldn't even drive anymore. I'd be worried about that. Uh, however, that's not the way that immigration actually works in practice. The way that actually works in practice is the snowball, which means that there's plenty of time to build the housing, to build the the to build the industries they're going to work in, and there's also plenty of time to assimilate their kids. Presumably, if we were going to um, we were going to loosen immigration restrictions to the point of having open borders, at somewhere some stage along the way, we would need voters on board. Mm-hmm. And this seems like a big problem in the sense that mm-hmm. voters. Um, from what I understand, maybe I'm wrong, tend to have nativists and protectionist mm-hmm. tendencies. <laughs> um, so I'm wondering if your book is really well written. It's very interesting. It's very informative. I think, as I said before, people should pick it up and read it. But given the incentive problems inflicting, uh, the, the facing voters, is your book, will it actually make a difference? Or is it simply a well-written book that just doesn't have much of a chance of actually changing things? Right. So here's what I would say. First of all, your question is spot on, right? I'd have to be an insane megalomaniac to think that my book is going to be the difference between having the status quo and having open borders in 10 years or 20 years. Uh, But we have to remember that this is true for anyone who promotes any policy reform. The number of people actually single-handedly achieve any important policy reform is very low. Milton Friedman might have done it a couple times, but... It's just not a realistic expectation for anyone to put on themselves. Really, all that you can uh, you can reasonably expect is to help tip the scales a little bit in a better direction, and that's what I'm trying to do with, to do with this book. I do think that it is much more effective than almost any other book written on immigration, uh, for many reasons. Uh, so one of them is uh, you, know, you know this you know by virtue of having this graphic format, I'm able to accomplish two things. Well, let's see. Well, we. Actually, more. But uh, first thing is, I convey a lot more information in a much shorter amount of time, right? So a well-chosen picture really is worth a thousand words. So like the amount of material that I cover in this book, I think would have t- easily taken me a thousand pages to do in text. And by combining words and pictures, I'm able to get it down to about 200 pages. And the pa- and furthermore, the pages are just much more entertaining than a regular book. So I think that not only do I convey more information per minute, I get more minutes of readers' time. And third of all, I just capture a much broader base of readers, and especially I'm capturing younger readers who are vastly more persuadable than older readers. So, I mean, I know a lot, a bunch of kids who are seven years old who have read this book. Now, they haven't understood the whole book, but they're a lot, more, a lot easier to persuade than someone who's 70, that's for sure. So, you know, just getting teenagers to read my book, young people to read the book. So I think this is a very effective way of persuading people compared to other methods, yeah, it's just very hard to persuade people of anything fundamental. Um, now, there are, of course, some cases where people where, where opinion has changed dramatically over the course of a few decades. So for gay marriage, there's been a dramatic change. For marijuana legalization, there's been a dramatic change. Uh, just for things like interracial marriage, there is a dramatic change. You know, when I was a kid, actually, it was still quite unpopular. I looked at the, I looked at the opinion data. I think there were still 30 or 40 percent of Americans said they did not approve of interracial marriage when I, in 1980. Could be wrong on that, but I think that's I think that's roughly right. All right. Now, what's going on? So, I mean, uh, you could say it's arguments, but you know, you also look back and you see the arguments around for a long time, and the beliefs were pretty flat, and then suddenly something gets going. It's a little hard to know what it is that got going, but once it does get going, then you do have this virtuous virtuous spiral of 
conformity pressure works and more people hear about the idea and it does start spreading. So, again, that is the hope. And, again, honestly, my view is I would have to be delusional to think I'm going to be the person, you know, the guy that did it. But to be pushing in that direction and just to add my weight to the scales of what's going to happen. And, again, I say, like, you know, the, you know, reasonably the most that I think I could accomplish is I could tip the scales just a little bit. Right. So maybe I could go and get someone who is going to be an anti-immigration Republican to be a immigration neutral Republican. Right. Someone saying, well, it's, you know, instead of saying immigration's bad to get a Republican saying, all right, well, like this guy made, made me think a little bit differently. All right. I'm just not convinced, but it's not as bad as I thought. That kind of thing. And you agree, of course, the same goes with my education book. I don't think I'm going to lead the def- to the defunding of college education in America. I am hoping to give a little bit of an actual half to people that were on the fence towards voting for more government funding. And they'll say, oh, I don't know, this guy convinced me that I think we, like, we've done enough. Let's just, let's not go any further than we already have. I mean, you know, if that education book, if I could just do a little bit to undermine the free college for all movement, I'll, I think I will have done my job for a lifetime, really. A common theme of your in your work seems to be the hidden cost of the status quo. Mm-hmm. Which reminds me of the classic economist's uh, distinction between the seen and the unseen. Uh-huh. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Was that intentional? Is that a, sort of an insight that guides your work? Or is it just things happen to line up that way? Well, what I would say is that I only want to write books about in defense of ideas that I think are highly meritorious but very unpopular. <laughs> so if there's an idea that's great but it's popular, then someone else will write the book. Right. And if there's an idea that's crummy, but it's unpopular, I I don't want to write that book. You know, I want to go and find things that I think are greatly undervalued and sell them to a broader audience. Why particularly that? Partly just because I think other, you know, the other books have been written already. And then just in terms of my personality, I think this really does fit with me. I am just an iconoclast by temperament. So I just get a lot more enjoyment and satisfaction out of smashing idols that I think should not be worshipped. Right. Uh, rather than just selling people on something that they're already ready to believe. So, and I think, and I mean, the way I often think about it is that, you know, each of my books starts with an idea that I think of as an orphan on the street. No one loves it. And I go and adopt the idea and raise it and make it strong and then send it out into the world and say, hey, you know, the rest of you thought that this orphan would never amount to anything. But this is actually my son. My daughter is here. These that, That's what my ideas are. Uh, now, you I mean, I'd say that like, like all of my books involve economic reasoning, and I think a big part of economic reasoning is being mindful of non-obvious costs and benefits, right? Although I, you know, I have written about whether the, the, like the general pattern of humanity is that they underrate hidden costs and benefits, and actually, you know, my my ultimate conclusion is no, they don't. I think it has, you know, so I say the real story is that if you like something then you're very credulous about its benefits and very skeptical about its costs. And if you dislike something, if you have antipathy for it, then that's when you adopt the, oh, the benefits, oh, sure. Whereas the costs, you are very willing to believe them. So, I mean, I actually have the, you know, so, you know, this distinction between the seen and the unseen comes from an essay by Frederick Bastiat. And I was pointing out that there are some areas where people are exceedingly credulous uh, about hidden benefits. So, for example, for war. It is very easy to get people rally, you know, to rally behind your, you, know, you to fight a war, even though the costs are completely obvious. They have that we pay them right now. The bodies happen now. The you know the budgetary costs happen now, and then the benefits. What are those? It's speculation about the future. So you want to invade Iraq. What do you say? So, well, 
Uh, it's going to be great in Iraq. Uh, they're going to have democracy. It's going to become a great U.S. ally. They're going to have freedom, human rights. It's going to strike a deadly blow against terrorism. All right. And you, you make up a bunch of stuff, which is just wishful thinking. And as long as people like you, right, you're like you're the U.S. military and people just have a favorable view of you, then wishful thinking about what you're going to accomplish, people, oh, yeah, yeah totally. And they and, and they're very willing to say, well, the cost is totally worth those costs, however obvious they may be. On the other hand, if it's businesses are delivering great stuff to people, that's something where people will be are very skeptical. Right. So just think about the level of resentment of Amazon. It's like, what is what visible thing has Amazon done? Just like, just like deliver endless packages at low cost conveniently to us. And yet people are like, what's the real plan? What are they really trying to pull? Right. And again, I think it comes down to people like government. They like the military. They, and another one, how about, like, here's actually the ultimate one, religion. Religion, the costs are all obvious, right? You're giving up free time. You're sacrificing. You're not eating meat, following all these rules. And the benefits, on the other hand, it's just a bunch of promises, right? No one's been to the afterlife to see whether you get any of these rewards. And yet people are extremely credulous about these unseen benefits. So, well, I do think that for me, like when you're talking about anything that is involving business and the rich, then people are very skeptical about hidden benefits or indirect benefits. Uh, but it's not a general psychological tendency. Rather, I think the general psychological tendency is skepticism about anything or you know, like, you're like, you're like, you're like pessimism about anything that you don't like, about any organization or system you don't like, and optimism about any system that you do like. And then within that framework, people will be very credulous about benefits, hidden benefits, as long as they like the delivery agent. And they'll be very skeptical about even obvious benefits if they don't like the delivery agent. When making decisions in your personal life, uh, how do you try and avoid falling prey to that credulity you were talking about? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So, so I mean, according to, like, just to start out with, I would just say that I have a general skepticism about anyone selling me uh, selling me a uh, an unseen benefit. You know, so for example, I'm uh, like have generally very skeptical views of doctors, right? And you know, and and there you know, I said like, what do they actually do for me? What have they actually accomplished, right? And I mean, I just have a lot of experiences going to doctors, and they use some empty verbiage and give me a name for my problem, and then to fail to help me. So I'm skeptical of them. Uh, so I, I do try to look at you know like like you know, past performance. And yes, past performance does not logically imply future performance, but it's the best predictor that we know. So I do try to look for that. I try to just stay calm. Right? For me, this is very valuable. So like any time that I'm upset, I try to be aware of it and say, well, like, I'm not going to make a decision when I'm upset. I'm not going to act on, well, on my feelings when I'm upset. I'm going to wait until I'm in a placid state of mind. Uh, so, you know, like I never wrote replies to referees on journal articles when I was upset. I would read it and I would, I would be upset just like anyone else if it was anything other than this is the greatest paper in human history. But then I would put it aside for a week or two and read it when I was ready to listen to criticism and to respond constructively. So there's that. Uh, another big thing for me is just quantifying your predictions in advance and then comparing what you said to what really happened. Anyone can give a vague prediction and then wait for stuff to happen and then claim to be right. Anyone can say, well, that guy's going to turn out to be a bad friend. And then you just wait a few years and the guy just um, misses, forgets to pick you up once at the airport and then say, see, I was right all along. 
well, like counting is it what would you didn't specify would count as a bad friend you didn't specify the time period over which the bad thing would occur so that's really just empty verbiage uh there's this great book by philip tetlock called super forecasting that uh, plays an enormous role in my life where i just think all right so like when i'm making a prediction what specifically am i saying and what's the time frame because if you just say well like, uh, like disaster will strike eventually that's not a real prediction actually First of all, what counts as a disaster is vague, but also eventually is an infinite period of time. So how could you ever show that was wrong? Right. So saying, you know, like no terrorist attack that kills more than 5000 people will happen in the next 10 years. That's a prediction. Right. Uh, and I've actually used this to make an enormous number of public bets. And this is not only a way for me to learn. It's a way for me to get self-knowledge. So, I mean, right now I have uh, I've had 20 public bets that have matured. And I do have a 100% victory record on those bets. So, yeah, I look at that and say, okay, so as long as I keep doing the kind of thing I've been doing and applying the same kind of intellectual hygiene, then I think I'm quite reliable you know, compared to other people. And then, you know, at the same time, I try to think about things that I miss. Like, I've missed every major disaster. I, you know, I did not predict September 11th. Not, no big surprise there. I didn't predict the Great Recession, right? And I didn't predict COVID. So three th three really big things that just struck me out of the blue. I will say that I've done better than other people because most people missed all three of those. Plus, they bought into a whole bunch of other predictions of disaster that didn't materialize. Do you use um, Do you use what you're willing to bet on to guide personal decisions? Yeah, totally. So you know, like you know, like this is like actually like you know when I'm arguing with a friend, often I say like you know maybe we should have a bet on this. And, you know, that does, you know, like, how much would you bet on this? Or what odds would you give on? Even if it's only hypothetical bet, it does sharpen the mind. And finally, for my last question, can you share with us a time that you failed, and preferably in a big way, mm -hmm. and what you learned from it? Hmm. Yeah. So, of course, I failed on all three of those disasters. I didn't predict them. Uh, <laughs> uh, what did I learn from them? I mean, I think, uh, like, let's see, as to what I learned from them in, in general. So here's the thing is that I do have a view that over the course of a century, you're likely to get a bunch of, of surprising disasters. So in that sense, the fact that over the last 20 years, we've had three, these three big disasters, it's not all, it, it's not that surprising to me as, as a general fact. What surprised, you know, I say the main thing that surprises me is uh, the specific things that they are. Uh, so, you know, like it could just as well have been a bigger war or, you know, like so or it could have been that you we, we got the plague earlier and there was no terrorist problem or or, or really. You know, I think of the terrorist problem as mostly being the reaction to the terrorism rather than the terrorism itself, because the actual problem is so small. Let's see. So those are all those. But, yeah, actually, I mean, I do have a better answer. So here's something where I was very wrong for many years, and this is the right way to talk to other people. So when I was a teenager, I was a extreme loudmouth, talked down to people, got angry at people, didn't try to figure out where people were coming from. I insulted people that even though I wanted them to listen to me, I did this very severely when I was in high school, and then I gradually reduced it. But it the but it, the, the half life of my jerkiness was like ten years. Right, just went on and on. Yes, I got better and better, but still. I nevertheless needlessly antagonized people. I didn't try very hard to make friends. I didn't think to talk to people in a way that would be more persuasive to them. 
And it just took me a long time to actually improve. So I think now I've gotten to a pretty good place, although I still know I, there's plenty of room for improvement left. So, you know, I don't want to just be average. I want to be great. Uh, so and actually, there was no real excuse for this because when I was 17, I did read a very helpful book, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. And I read it and said, yeah, yeah, that all seems right. And then I didn't do anything with it and just ignored it. All right. And earlier this year, I did reread it and realized, first of all, what a fool I was not to have implemented what Dale was telling uh, telling me to do all that time because I had the book. I could have, you know, why not get started? Uh, but secondly, I realized so much of the improvement that I've had has just been reinventing the wheel that Dale Carnegie provided in that book. So, yes, I did learn to improve the way that I talk to other people. But why did I have to figure it out for myself when I could have just read it? Uh, and and done it. So I would say that's probably the biggest thing that I, you know, thing of most importance to me that I was really wrong about for many years. And I'm still trying to purify myself and just to get rid of the last vestiges of this very wrong-headed view about the, the best way to talk to other people. Brian, thanks for coming on the show. That was my immense pleasure. Thank you very much.